Well, 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 it's nice costumes, but I think it needs more girls. Is that the end? What's too short? How how do you tell? Uh, That's too short. I, too fast. Too fast. Too short. Who who is the shadow part? Where, where's I don't see where the name fits. So, so I don't know. It, it was good. I to heck with tradition. I loved it personally. Radio Drone. Thursday nights are Radio Drome, and I don't have quite the voice that you're going to hear us talk about, but I am Josh Hadley. With me is Alex the Crazy Manjowski. Hey, how's everyone doing? See? Cecil, not quite Crow T Robot, Trachtenberg. That's 1 0. Sure. For that, you get an Adam and Eve promo. Jeez, you didn't even pick up Mystery Science Theater, man. Anyway. Go to adamandeve.com and use the promo code DROME to get 50% off a single item, free shipping in the U.S., three free DVDs, and a free mystery gift. And our guest would have said that so much better than me. Oh, he would have. So here's how I was going to open the show. What evil lurks in the hearts of men? The shadow knows. Wait, wrong shadow. We're, tonight we're talking about Shadow Stevens, or should we say The Voice? I grew up not so much watching but like knowing his voice from tv and from game shows most specifically uh the hollywood squares he just is one of those guys he's always seemed like such a cool person and it was really nice to find out that he is and he's just got that voice that like every now and then you hear somebody uh that just has a voice that just is so so natural and just so awesome, like a, like a Morgan Freeman or um, a Don LaFontaine. It's like it's unlike any others, and there's no re- there, it's blatantly obvious why they've gotten into voice work because that kind of voice you just don't come across very often. I kind of equate Shadow Stevens voice-wise to if Orson Welles drank less. That yeah. That's pretty good. Well, he does have a very fine voice. Um, I love his sense of humor from Tracks and Shadow Vision and all those federated commercials. He's got this just wonderful, absurdist and just random sense of humor that delighted me. His sense of humor, which is something we'll get into more in a little bit, is very rapid fire, which is something that was not new in the 80s, but new for the way he was using it. Would I be fair in saying that, Alex, since you've seen Shadow Vision? Yes. It was certainly something I'd never seen before. So Shadow Stevens, he was worked in radio and whatnot for a little bit, but he actually rose to fame with the Federated Group. They they had 14 different electronics warehouse stores in the western and southwestern United States. He created their advertising icon, Fred R. Rated, for Federated. So three times a week for, I, I think it was like six years he came up with, and never repeated himself, a 30-second unique 
TV spot for whatever VCR or stereo or whatever that they were selling that was so bizarre that he became way more famous than Federated or the products that he was selling. Cecil, are you familiar with Fred R. Rated? Um, mostly just by name, not by, like, I, I didn't really know of them until I had heard about them after I had started looking into uh, Shadow Stevens more. I didn't know about them until just uh, before we started researching this episode. Did you tell me about them? And I grew up with these commercials and d- didn't really remember them. They just might not have aired because I grew up where there was one of those stores. With the Fred R. Rated thing, like I said, three times a week, he, this is he's the he's known as the man who got famous 30 seconds at a time. And these were unique as hell commercials with actual production values. They were usually comical. And he would be like spoofing some new movie or having an insane one where people are literally dropping televisions at him from the roof and he's dodging them while trying to pitch the televisions. It was incredibly unique. And then he he also got, you know, he was on Hollywood Squares and whatnot. And then, as Atari is wont to do, Atari bought the Federated Group in 1987. And what happened to everything Atari touched in the 80s? It died. Exactly. They Within two years, they ran Federated into the ground. And also, one of their first dictates, which shows probably why Atari kept running everything into the ground, we don't need these kind of weird, wacky ad campaigns. We want people to know that this is a serious store where they can get serious, good values. So one of the first things that Atari did was fire Shadow Stevens and got rid of the Fred R-rated commercials. Fucking idiots! Picture of the stereo. This is five ninety nine. Go to Federated Group. Yeah, after they fired Shadow Stevens, it was just average, bland commercials. Uh, just idiots. They, it's it's such a shame because Atari had the world at their feet. They had so many things they could have done, and it just seemed that, like a lot of companies, they get to a certain point, and then all of a sudden they forget how they got to that point. It was like, hey, we were the Mavericks. We did things a little bit differently and we created something new and we rose to be multimillionaires. Now they've acquired other things and they just start to make everything bland and then everything falls apart. So it was frustrating that they would do something like that where they bought up a company and then just drove it into the ground by removing the thing that got it to where it was. I mean, Shadow Stevens as Fred R. Rated was arguably more famous than Federated. They actually had in-store signings where people would come to get Fred R-rated autographed photos. And hey, buy a VCR while you're here too. I don't understand the Atari board of directors going, this guy is cheap, the commercials are cheap, but we just don't need that kind of thing. We're Atari, we know what's better. We only went bankrupt four years ago, so we clearly know what's right. Idiots. Atari, since they had gone bankrupt, were probably trying to play it as safe as possible. We don't want risky things that are different. That's actually probably accurate, unfortunately. After he was let go from Federated, he started to be on the Hollywood Squares more, and he started to get little appearances in things. But his first big thing was Shadow Vision, which he made for Cinemax. In 1986, Cinemax was trying to break out you know, HBO already had First and Ten, Ray Bradbury Theater, things like that. And so Cinemax wanted some original shows, and they decided to focus on comedy. It was called the Cinemax Comedy Experiment, where they would take comedians and give them carte blanche. You got a small budget, you got a half hour, 
do whatever you want. They had Harry Shearer's It's Just Television. Hilarious. It bombed. They had Chris Elliott's Action Family, which we've discussed before. Bombed. They had Shadow Vision, which was probably one of the most unique TV shows of the 80s. And as you'll hear when we play the interview I did with Shadow Stevens, they had no clue what to make of Shadow Vision. Now, Cecil, I know you haven't seen this, but have you heard about Shadow Vision? Oh, yeah. I actually was well aware of Shadow Vision. It was just one of those things where actually I remembered it from Shadow was promoting it when he was on Hollywood Squares. He was like, you know, check out my new project, Shadow Vision. And they remember showing like a little clip. It was like they came back to everybody and they were like, okay. Like everybody that was there in studio had no idea how to react to this sort of thing. And at the time, uh, I didn't have cable, so I didn't have any way of watching it. And it became one of those things that got buried and it wasn't really hard, easy to come across. And so I just never was able to get a copy and watch it. So I never was really able to check it out. I always wanted to, but yeah, I mean, I was well aware of it. Alex, since you actually watched it and I've seen it too, and technically it's the second episode as well, which didn't air on Cinemax, but the brain parasites of bimbo limbo is the second episode, which by the way is an amazing title. Alex, how would you describe shadow vision to somebody? In a way, I'm asking you to to kind of take the position of the executives and their problem of, I have no clue how to market this. I, I'm completely on the side of those executives because I watched it and I had no idea what I was watching. It was funny. It was bizarre. It wasn't even until that interview with Shadow where I was like, oh, so that's what was going on there. Oh, well, I guess I get it now because it's, it's weird. Is is basically there is... There's an alternate reality that exists in space with a anti-reality talk show on a spaceship that watches you, this is not mind control, while everyone on Earth is going crazy, a normal man named Norman gets sucked up to this spaceship where Shadow Stevens is a talk show host that gives you an evolution test at the beginning of the show so they can broadcast to your evolutionary level, so everyone is seeing something different, and this is all quick cut, along with also Shadow Stevens playing a rival evil TV executive, capturing Norman's wife, and somehow deciding during torturing to shave her, that that'll somehow make her talk, while he's trying to figure out what all is going on, what is Shadow Vision, and this is not mind control. I didn't even touch on a tenth of what's in this 40 minutes, did I, Alex? No, you didn't. It's it's odd. It's really, really odd. Odd in a biz- odd, bizarre in a good way, though, right? In a good way, yeah. I mean, I was entertained by it. And it, it's it's very fast paced, as you'll hear in the interview. I think Shadow said there are more edits in this forty minutes than there are in many movie franchises. I mean, I don't think three seconds goes by without an edit to something else, which but you might call a music video style for a TV show that had not been done in 1986. Do you think Cinemax just got cold feet by the fact that they didn't understand it? So despite all the positive reviews, I mean, Rolling Stone called it the most original show in the history of television. Do you think that they were afraid that just because well, they didn't get it, that their audience was just as dumb as they were? Well, what, what order did it air? Because you were saying there was the Harry Shearer thing, and then there was the other, uh, there was another thing. Chris that Elliott's Chris Elliott Elliott family. Bombed. Like, was this the third, or 
like the third thing that aired. You know what I mean? I, I'm not sure. I know they were all part of the same kind of floating show, but I'm not sure what, what order they went in. Okay, because the reason I asked that is because what may have happened is if the Harry Shearer thing came out and bombed, and then they aired the Chris Elliott thing and it bombed, and then they aired the Shadow Stevens thing, and it was so weird, they may have just decided to cut their losses. They're like, all right, well, clearly we don't really know what we're doing here, and we don't understand this, so let's just scrap the whole thing. Well, I thought Shadow Vision was absolutely brilliant. I I thought it kind of influenced what would later become Max Headroom. Maybe not in style, but in the tone of television that is not just interactive, but watches you back. And we're in a world where television ratings are all that matter. It's very much Max Headroom before Max Headroom, if that makes sense. But that bombed. So Shadow just went on to various acting roles. And then... And I'll turn this over to you, Cecil, because you are a resident expert. Then he made what is arguably his most famous project, Tracks. Tracks was fantastic. Even in its state that it is, not the movie that it was intended to be, as Shadow has said, you know, they had uh, taken it and edited it into sort of this weird amalgamation of humor and little elements of seriousness and just dark humor. And he, you know, the the movie did exist in a different format uh, where uh, it was much more of Shadow's kind of wacky humor injected in there. And he said it did flow better, but the studio, for whatever reason, you know, again, probably something along the lines of what happened with Cinemax. Well, wasn't uh, it Dino De Laurentiis? Uh, I think it. I think this I was think a Dino was, production. I think, I think it might have been a Dino De Laurentiis. I'm, I'm a little it rusty was. on it, but the, the was first, it okay? It's it's De Laurentiis. Okay, then yeah, they just they just didn't really entirely know what they had, so they they changed it, and uh, it's a shame because he's been trying to get the rights back because HBO owns it, and they just refuse to. They they don't want to do anything with it, but they don't want to sell it, so they're just gonna sit on it. And it's a shame because I would love to see his vision of it. Because I think that the movie that it is now, it's not available on DVD. you got to find a VHS of it. But the movie that it is is still entertaining because it's so ridiculous. But I would love to see what his vision of it is. And as you'll hear in the interview that we'll play momentarily, he is just astonished that people like the movie because he really, really... I think he's a little bit bitter at the film because it's not at all what he intended it to be, and yet people love it anyway. You know how that can kind of stick in your craw a little bit? Yeah, it almost makes it feel like the producers that changed it were right, when really it's like there's nothing to compare it to, so this is all that we know of the movie, so we can't see what his vision is. So yeah, I'm I'm sure that just bothers the hell out of him. I could understand it bothering the hell out of him because not nobody's seen his cut. That his cut may be better, but the fact that everybody has settled for this cut and enjoys this cut, who knows what they'll think of his. Okay, Cecil, for those who haven't seen it, can you describe tracks to them? Since it's unavailable on DVD, I'm going to say a lot of our listeners are probably going to go and seek it out after this show, but try and pitch them tracks. <laughs> okay. Um... You guys heard that laugh. That's why I... <laughs> Threw this at Cecil. <laughs> Just say it's a movie about cookies and leave it at that. It, it is a movie about cookies. It's a movie so about murder and cookies. Some of the worst cookie cookies. ideas ever. Oh, God, yeah. Just some of the worst cookie ideas 
in the history of ever. Okay, Shadow Stevens is a mercenary that decides to retire from being a mercenary to bake cookies. Problem is, he's really good at killing, but he's not good at cooking. So he starts to run out of money, so he becomes a town tamer. He goes to really bad neighborhoods that are full, filled with crime. Detroit. Go Detroit. Well, in this case, in, it's the city of Hadleyville. Yes, the city of Josh Hadleyville. Hey, hey, and, hey. You never said my first name. <laughs> it's, it's full of, uh, of, of hookers, or hookers and uh, brothels and liquor stores and gun stores. And just crime is running rampant. And he goes in, doesn't really negotiate anything. It just goes in and tells the chief of police that he's going to start murdering people. And just goes and, and, through. And the and chief just, of police owes him 50 grand for it. The chief of police owes <laughs> And then he he seduces the mayor and uh, just murders everyone in town, becomes a hero, gets the money, and opens up his his awful cookie uh, distribution center. And yes, snacks by tracks, snacks by tracks. That's right, with this uh, S N A X X. And and the I, movie the movie is an obvious spoof of action movies, but it is played one hundred percent straight. That all of these bizarre things are normal in this world. That's the part that I like. The tone is like Lethal Weapon crossed with Airplane. But without, like, goofy sounds or anything. Like, to kind of punctuate it. It's yeah, like, it's played, played completely 100% straight. They the, the mobsters that are against him tied a whole bunch of Boy Scouts to their car to use this human shield. And... Yeah. And... <laughs> They were, and, they, they, it was a little league team. Oh, was a, I'm sorry. It was a little league team. That's right. Yeah, and <laughs> then like the next scene, they tie all the the little leaguers up in front of the strip club they're hiding out in. That's <laughs> and, <laughs> and and it, and it has so either. One of, and this movie also has either the worst or best deaths to a villain ever. Oh, I think wait, Robert Davi. Robert Davi's death throughout the whole movie, he's incredibly flatulent. So at first, you just think, oh, that's lowbrow humor. Well, after he confronts Trax and the mayor from RoboCop 2, yes, that's him, he gets in his car, throws Trax an insult, lays a big fart, lights a cigar, and the car explodes. Is that the most undignified yet totally unexpected death ever? It's so awesome because it fits the theme of the movie so perfectly. Because here's the big villain. Here is the bad guy. Here is the ultimate showdown. And he kills himself with his own fart. It's yeah. Wonderful. It was hilarious. And it plays it so straight, which makes it so much better. It's not like played for laughs. It's this is this could actually happen. And most of the movie is that way too, because everything in there is so absurd, but everybody reacts to it as if this shit happens every day. Yeah. And I I just love the part after he raids a brothel. And he's he's given everybody a chance. Hey, I won't kill you this time. Everybody can leave. And he's shaking all their hands like, you know, the greeter outside of a casino. And he's like, if you come back, I'll kill you. If you come back, you're dead. And he just it's so casual. It was brilliant. Why do you think this film failed? Honestly, probably because when it came out, it you know, when they finished it and they put it out and they gave it to the people to market it. The people probably had no idea how the hell to market this. 
because it's like, well, do we market it as a as a cop movie, a buddy cop movie, a comedy? Because it's just so off the wall and so different and unique from everything else that's out there. And more than likely, they just didn't know what to do with it. So it either had limited release or they put it out in theaters and just were like, meh. And it, it just failed to find its audience back then, as a lot of really bizarre films have done over the years where they don't find their audience until years later. And this was one where I had only heard about a couple years ago myself. So it's just it's just one of those movies. It's just so bizarre that it defied convention. It didn't find its audience for a long time. So it failed at the time. I can't think of a way to pitch that movie to an audience. And see, the way I look at it is, I, I remember catching tracks on VHS. I don't remember what year the VHS came out. So it would have been either really late 80s or really early 90s that I caught this when I was in high school. I didn't appreciate the movie the way I do now back then. I, I was kind of irritated at, frankly, what I thought was some of the dumb humor, like the stuff with the Little League team. That was just kind of like, well, this is stupid. Because of the fact that the movie plays it straight, and it was advertised almost like a straight movie, the comedy does kind of take you aback a little bit. So I agree with both of you. The, the marketing department at, at Dino's company at DEG completely dropped the ball on this one. They had no clue what to do. We're going we're gonna to play the interview with Shadow Stevens where he talks about Shadow Vision and tracks, and then when we come back, we'll talk about the rest of Shadow Stevens' career. Can you give us some background on how you came to Shadow Vision before we get into the meat of what it was? Well, it grew out of my uh, era with the team that did the Federated commercials, and we had a really unusual relationship. It was the same six guys who did everything, you know, 1,100 commercials. And we uh, got really good at production and loved no-attention-span entertainment. And this is a time when things didn't, weren't really thought of that way. But we like really tight editing. And I wanted to explore comedy that went faster than you could laugh. The whole idea was, like, let's do something like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy that was funny, but was one thing after another after another and treated, you know, kind of like serious. But it would be deep and have profound kind of ideas and stupid ideas and wacky craziness, all presented with great uh, kind of earnestness. And so I started writing this thing and and uh, carved out a bunch of ideas, and then the ideas grew, you know, how it is when you write down something. And then you get a, and something else comes to you, and then you add that to the mix. And pretty soon I had all of these ideas. And I got to the point where I had done pretty well in, in the company, and we had our own recording studio and post-production and, you know, cameras and everything. So here, let's do something that explores everything. We'll do it in, in, on film and on high-resolution video and low-resolution and time-lapse photography and stop-motion photography, and claymation, and everything we can think of that we want to experiment with and have fun with, and then fold it together into this universe based on the idea of mind control. So the, it, when a, a face takes over your television that says, this is not mind control, think about it, and, and it gets repeated and repeated and repeated. And if it's repeated enough, it is kind of mind control, and it's telling you it's not, so it's not. So, you know, people are in denial, but they're going, what is this? 
And we have this whole idea of a, a universe that is slightly out of control. And it's up to one man to make a difference. One normal, regular guy, Norman Jones, tells his girlfriend, I'll do the thinking, you do the smiling. Okay. <laughs> Faith Pate. Faith Pate. Yeah, all the names of everybody are all like really pretty amusing. I, I read a review of this when it was new. I think it was the New York Times, maybe LA Times or something, that called it a mentally exhausting half hour. I can it see is. where they're coming from, but do you think that's what most people took away from this back in 86? Yeah, well, even HBO or Cinemax, when they, uh, when they finally decided to air it, said, um, if you understand this, will you tell us? And it was so full of, like, these unusual ideas that were kind of playful, like, you know, the book of the subgenius? Yes. Okay, so you know, that was a big influence in our lives. We we thought that was really hilarious. And it had ideas, subgenius-like ideas about conspiracies and about the nature of the universe and universes upon universes and you change the future by changing now. You know, all these kind of profound ideas all put into a kind of cartoon uh, world where Norman is running from himself and has to confront himself and close the door to the past to open up the door to the future. And so it's a it's a play on that sort of thing, I guess. It's pretty it's pretty insane, I know. <laughs> I, I'm gonna guess the fake you as the network executives at the end of it was that kind of the real reactions you got yes. from the from the Cinemax executives. Uh, from everyone, uh, it was well, you know, who's the host? Uh, I don't understand where the word shadow vision, what it means. And then, you know, some people go, you know, what the heck with it. I think it's brilliant. Absolutely. But most of them were like, I so, in fact, I showed it to one guy, uh, a guy I love, Rick Rosner, who is the producer of Hollywood Squares, and I did it. Really terrific guy. Very bright, really good producer, but really, really straight. And you have to realize I came out of, you know, a long period of time of, using way too many intoxicants and acid and psychedelics and, you know, learning to meditate and meditation and quantum physics and explorations into uh, the otherworldliness of the kinds of things I do on or, or did for a couple of years on mental radio. And so it was written with that, with that kind of thinking and, and Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which I love to this day, and uh, Subgenius, which is crazy in anybody's world. And those guys clearly did way too many psychedelics. So I, I show this in our studio. We had you know, surround sound and multiple video screens. There were no big video screens at that time, but we had lots of monitors. So it was a really contained environment, and the sound was especially spectacular. And we watched this thing, and it was so... Afterward, when it ended, he had this dazed and confused look in his eye, and a little bit uncomfortable, and he said, I have to go put money in my car. <laughs> and he left to go, <laughs> to go put money in the meter for his car, but he didn't come back for quite a while. He goes, well, you know, and, and, and like anybody, he would go, that was really 
different. Crazy, just crazy. And as soon as you can gather the ability to form words after your mind has been saturated with, you know, it's like, I don't know that anybody had ever put in more edits and more kind of chaos in a linear narrative ever. Uh, we took the, the show to MTV at that time. We wanted to get a series. They turned down the idea of the series. I guess they thought, you know, it's even too crazy for them. But all of a sudden, MTV started doing these these really fast edits and, and uh, this whole no attention span kind of video. Coincidence or something more? Perhaps it was mind control. Could be mind control from someone whose name we dare not speak. Well, did was Cinemax enthused to air it? Because it seems like they aired it and then they just kind of went, okay, we're done. Yeah, well, that's kind of the way we felt. You know, the, the, uh, the see, I had financed the production of the demo, and the demo had all of the really you know, trippy stuff, like that stuff that happens at the beginning where he runs through the doorway and goes into clock world and then falls into space and ends up in the uh, floating auditorium. And, um, and that was really, like, trippy stuff. You know, so they, but they kind of thought, I think, that what they were going to get was a, because it was a comedy experiment. And in our mind, it was, we wanted to experiment with the edges of comedy. You know, like, it's funny, but we're not going to give you time to laugh. Just going to go, what? 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 Here's a surprise. Here's another surprise. What does it all mean? Oh, sort of, I can sort of follow it. Oh, no, I can't. Wait a minute. What? And that was, like, our intention. <laughs> I, I think that if I had done it again later, I probably might have done it with children and all, all on film or all on high-resolution video because there were a lot of problems that came up because we were determined to experiment with every kind of form of uh, experimentation, things that we wanted to know about claymation and time-lapse and stop-motion and all of the different things that are in it. Well, that was the other thing yeah. I was going to ask was, was all of that, I mean, obviously there's a few, little bit of stock footage, but like the claymation and the animation and all that, was that stuff you picked up or was that made by you guys for Shadow Vision? No, it was made by us for Shadow Vision. Like the history of the universe, it was all like done by our group. And uh, for better or worse, it is what it is. It's, uh, but I think that the funniest part of the whole thing is that it gets to the end and stops, and it's the guys in the in the boardroom going, "What? Is that it? Uh, I what? I don't get it. Who's the host?" And that's the kind of stuff that people would always say to us. I found that so funny. What? Because it's, it's got you know it's a sensory assault you know it's an overload of stuff and by today's standards not so much but believe me in 1987 it was really crazy. Well, and then you you had I guess what I've seen as the second episode, the brain parasites of Bimbo Limbo, which by the way is an amazing title. How did that come about? Was that part of the Cinemax deal or was that something else? I just I love the title, Brain Parasites of Bimbo Limbo. It is pretty fun. Well, I, you know, I was surrounded by really creative guys. The uh, the uh, producer uh, that I hired is named Michael Hill. Michael has been head of production at HBO for about 20 years now. He's a really bright guy, really organized. Kami Zalotnik is the head of um, of um, programming at Stars Network. 
David Nichols is um, editor in chief for Easy Rider magazine, a bunch of different magazines. Chuck Serena, a musician, and, and does all kinds of production, special effects stuff. He's really uh, quite an artist. They're they're all really interesting people, and we were all we all had this this pretty extraordinary moment in time. We were working together. And we never we never argued. We never got in fights. It was always a consensus of opinion steered by me, and I would make the final decision if there was something that we you know were divided on. But we had a remarkable relationship. And it was quite successful. The commercials certainly were wildly successful. Shadow Vision, not so much. But we were happy with, you know, what we were able to put together for very little money and and uh, and wanting to do something shockingly different. Really, I put it up there right with, like, Max Headroom as kind oh, of cool. TV that it is completely and utterly aware of itself. Yeah. Oh, thank you. We pretty much did too, and you know, laughed about it. We'd hoped that it would go, uh, you know, into something greater because we had, you know, we had episodes written where where uh, Norman would wake up inside a pizza. Uh, it's like, how do you get out of this? And, and really, like odd, twisted kind of, you know, uh, weird reality stuff that's kind of wacky and funny and. And we didn't get that to play out because I think what we made was, frankly, too crazy. <laughs> well, that seems to be a good chunk of your career because, like, look at Tracks. I thought Tracks yeah. was a brilliant film that didn't seem to find its audience. It, well, Tracks was a Tracks, you know, the problem, the real problem with Tracks is that the guy who wrote it and produced it drank too much and he wanted to control it. Completely, and that's why I had my hair grown out so much, and why I got so built up when I actually probably shouldn't have. But he hired a director who had never done a movie before, so that he could control it. And then he and and uh, the director drank every night and rewrote, so they made it dumber and dumber and dumber, and took away what was a really funny script if it had been done that way. And then it things and then things just got worse because Dilaretis was going bankrupt at that time. And uh so this got caught and they took uh they did an edit, a first edit of it, and everybody hated it. They did a second edit and a third edit and everybody hated it. And then they brought in and showed me what had been done and I hated it. I was just humiliated by the way it was done because it was so it took it didn't have any sense of style to it. And I and I went to Dilaretis and I said just give me the footage, and I'll do the edit for free. I have a studio. I have a team that's really good, especially with sound and music and editing, and we'll make this thing have a life. And he wouldn't do it. I don't know. No, I can't do that. I, don't know. Sorry. I, 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 I liked like, the film. Oh. I, th- I thought it was funny. I loved all the... A friend of <coughs> mine is demanding... Moment. A, def- a friend yeah. of mine is demanding I ask you about the insane cookie ideas. Were those ad-libs or... Where'd you a come lot up with the insane, were. like, you know, spam and shrimp cookies? Some of that was in the script, and some of the stuff, like puppy swirls, were things that I had lived and came up with. And, you know, there were moments, you know, like, uh, come come back again, and I tell you, you know, good night, good night, folks. You know, come, come back again, and you're dead. You know, a lot of that was improvised. It isn't without, without moments, but it has 
the, the for example, the music track. I think they paid somebody twelve hundred dollars to do that, and it's the worst music track in the history of movies, and took really a lot of the soul out of it. And like the, uh, the gunshot, they didn't do any post-production sound to make it, you know, really pop. <laughs> so there were these things about it that the editing and the style and the and the, uh, the the final touches that would have made it, you know, a pretty interesting little film and much funnier were all taken out of it because it was, you know, they finally gave up and then he went bankrupt and then HBO bought it and they took the uh, the last edit and then threw this little soundtrack on it and then uh, released it on VHS. Are you surprised um, that it has the cult following it has? Shocked. Um, last year, I was invited up to Portland where this um, art group loves it and they do a thing called B-Movie Bingo. And it's the first time I saw it in 20 years. They, at the show, like a Saturday night, they, uh, people come in and they give them bingo cards. And then the guys sit at a table down in front with a microphone. And as the movie goes along, they take all of the uh, stuff of B-movies, you know, like Hero Gets Chewed Out by Boss. And so that comes on the screen and it's Hero Gets Chewed Out by Boss. And people are looking down at their bingo cards and marking it off. And... I, you know, a hero gets thrown out of the second story window. And pretty soon somebody's going, bingo, they stop the film. Guy walks down the aisle, goes to the front, and he goes, boss, can't shoot up, I boss, I'm out of window, you know, fight on the second floor. Uh, yeah, that's a bingo. They give him a prize, and they start the film again. It was the funniest night I had in years. And it gave me, it allowed me to look at it without being critical of the imperfections and really laugh. It was pretty damn funny. It had a lot of really funny ideas in it, and and it was my first appreciation of it since it was made. So it's very, it's you know, it, it, who knew? You know, I couldn't believe that anybody would watch it. But it's my nephew, one of my nephew's favorite films. He grew up watching it, and thought, and just thinks it's hilarious. Well, I don't think it's that hilarious. I think it's kind of funny. <laughs> do you do you think it has any kind of life because there's no DVD release yet? Do you think there's any no, chance of it getting HBO a special only. edition? No, I had Mike because Mike works at HBO. Mike Hill. I asked him about it and he uh, checked into it and they said no. They've they've done uh, audience research on it and they don't see any chance of it making enough money to justify doing it. So they gave me uh, <clears throat> a, a handful of uh, DVDs of it. And that's all that exists, as far as I know. You know about mental radio? Yes. Mental radio is my passion for two years, and I walked away from it because of my partnership. And the guy uh, reneged on every part of the contract, so I decided to say, that's, okay, that's enough. So I started uh, Blackout Television. And Blackout Television was pitched last week to BET, and I took the whole cast in. And it was the funniest meeting I've ever had in my life. Their whole development staff was there. And they laughed so hard that after the meeting, they went back to their offices. People came down from other offices, from legal, from promotions, from advertising. And what was going on in the conference room? It sounded hilarious. It was really, really funny. And they really got it. Now, whether they will know, I think, by the end of the week, whether we'll have a, uh, a series deal. But if we don't, it will be really shocking to me because the meeting was an absolute success and it showed them these guys are as brilliant as anybody I've ever met. 
they uh, have now seen their, their uh, live show 16 times. And last night they did one just fall on the floor funny. Just absolutely hilarious. They, they do the black version of, of your favorite movie. And last night they did The Exorcist. And the black version was called You Need Jesus. And they do the, the, the title music, the, everything is improvised, and it's just spectacular. So Blackout Television is a parody of a black entertainment network with shows, different shows like a parody of Good Morning America called Morning Blackout, a parody of The View called As Black Men, a parody of Judge Judy called Lady Justice, and a parody of The Tonight Show called Black of the Night. And they play all the characters. They're all different characters. It's on the air and behind the scenes of these shows. And it's absolutely, we've now done 48 podcasts, experimenting with the ideas and working on the characters and the uh, content. And it's uh, all designed to go to television. I'm glad that he was willing to talk with me about about this stuff because think about it. How often is someone like Shadow Stevens, who's still working today, get somebody that wants to interview him and then to find out, oh, you want to talk about my two, the two most notorious bombs in my career? Why? In a way, can you see why it was kind of surprising he agreed to do the interview? Yes and no, because I'm sure he's still proud of that. Yes, it bombed, but there are people that enjoy it. You know, I've talked to people about the worst work in their career, and they've loved talking about it, you know, because they're proud of it. And they love when people like the stuff that they like, whether the general public did or not. Yeah, that's basically it. Uh, the it's it's not like I mean the movies didn't do well, but they're not movies that he hates. It's one thing when you have somebody who uh, they work on a project and they just they have fights with the director or, or fights with another cast member and the whole movie just becomes a disaster because of that. These are just movies that didn't do well. So he still likes the actual content. He just doesn't like what happened to them. So I could see being more than happy to talk about it, actually getting more out there, you know, saying, hey, you know, these things still exist, track them down and watch them. Maybe not so much tracks, because I know uh, he wants people to see his vision. The thing is, if enough, if there's enough uh, of a buzz that starts to build around it, maybe HBO will get up off their ass and sell him the rights or finally release the thing on DVD. It'd be nice. Yeah, it's been my experience that people like talking about and answering questions about stuff that not every person asks asks them about you know it'd be different like i know robert plant fucking hates stairway and hates people asking him about stairway same kind of thing the stuff that they don't get a chance to talk about they enjoy talking about unless you're someone like johnny depp that says you even bring up 21 jump street and the interview is over can i go well you're a jerk well that's because he's a big bag of douches after all this shadow he bummed around hollywood for a while he had his own tv series for a while called max monroe and it was interesting. It was, the, the way he put it was, what if Lethal Weapon were played for comedy? And it's got the black partner who's kind of older and, you know, too old for this shit. And he has the white partner. I mean, he, it literally is almost a parody of Lethal Weapon. And it did not find an audience at all. It was laugh track free. And just like tracks, it was totally played straight. But it was definitely a, meant to be taken not to be taken seriously, 
That failed, unfortunately. And then he had little roles and things. He was in the Roger Corman Bucket of Blood slash The Death Artist remake in 1995 as the villain. That was cool. He was the voice of Doc Samson in the Incredible Hulk Hulk cartoon. And then he got his next regular role on Dave's World. I never liked Dave's World, though. Um, I never did either, but that's mostly just because I'm not a big fan of sitcoms. Never experienced Dave's World, but I do need to go give that Roger Corman remake a, a chance now. I've been writing it off all these years, but knowing that Shadow Stevens is involved, I'm willing to watch it now. Anthony Michael Hall's our hero. He takes over for Dick Miller. Okay, I'm sold. I, I'm, I'm getting this movie right now. And then he, he did some more some more TV work. He, hey, he was in a Baywatch episode. I don't know if that's up or down, but he was in Baywatch, 90210. And then in a weird way, in 2003, Shadow Vision made a return. There was a Canadian series that was syndicated here in the U.S. called Weird TV. They chopped Shadow Vision up into little three- and four-minute bits and played that as a serial on Weird TV. So... Shadow Vision sort of came back in 2003, the 80s version. Well, I guess that was probably uh, back in 2003 was when people finally started getting broadband, you know, that it was going out to more of the just general public. And there were a lot more video things out there. So there were a lot of weird TV shows like that that were popping up on the Internet, like uh, Judge Cal's High Weirdness and, and stuff where it was just... Uh, hey, here's a collection of bizarre shit. And uh, so I guess this was maybe uh, some ca- the Canadian TV's version of that. Well, let's compile a bunch of other stuff and throw it all together into this like blender. Well, and then he was also went back to Hollywood Squares in 1998. And most people will recognize his voice. He's been the he's been the announcer on the Late Late Show with Craig Ferguson since 2006 to present. So you hear his voice five nights a week. So that's where most people would know him from. And if you want to get really obscure, lending his voice to it, do you remember the in 1990 and 91, remember the Horror Hall of Fame that syndicated awards show? Either of you? Can't Very say I vaguely. I remember watching these. I was in high school at the time. He was the announcer for those as well. He was also, he did weird announcing things like Bugs Bunny's 50th anniversary TV special. He was the announcer for that and things like that. He he does a lot of voice work. Why do you think someone like Shadow Stevens, to the mainstream, they're not going to recognize him from Craig Ferguson, to the mainstream, why do you think he has endured, endured so long kind of hanging out at the fringes of television? It's that voice. I mean, that that is one of those one in a million voices. He's been able to just... Uh, use that. And I mean, I'm sure he probably made a fairly decent amount of money doing Hollywood Squares for all those years. And so uh, he was living off of that and off of the syndication money that was coming from that. And he was able to make enough to be able to do all these little weird side projects over the years. So uh, he's just one of those. And the other thing, too, his name, you know, Shadow Stevens with a D.O.E., it's just it's always uh, stuck out. It's been memorable. And uh, you say it a couple times and you ha- add that voice to it. People just remember that. Well, it's a very catchy name. Shadow Stevens, you know, but I'm going to go with Cecil. It's that voice. And the fact that he's a nice guy, he might he's probably great to work with. 
we also have to talk about his sense of humor. I enjoy his sense of humor, which is not necessarily, I don't want to say bizarre for the sake of bizarre, but it's bizarre for the sake of keeping you off balance as a viewer because you truly do not know what's coming next in something where, like in Shadow Vision, Alex, were were you ever able to predict what the hell was about to happen next? No, because I, I, I honestly had no idea what was going on half the time. That's what I loved about it. I think his sense of humor was sort of based on the drinking and the intoxicants in his body at the time. I loved his sense of humor. I I think he kind of comes across as one of those outsider artists that maybe made the mistake of trying to chase the mainstream when he should have been embracing the counterculture. I think the counterculture of Shadow Vision and Trax is where his true talent lies. Yeah, I'm with you. I think that uh, his sense of humor and just bizarre nature really fit so well with that. So if he had kept going in that direction, it it's tough to say. I would have loved for that to have taken off, but it may have seemed that every time he went in that direction, uh, it just didn't go over well. So he went back you know, to the mainstream. And it is possible that if he did keep doing those bizarre side projects, he may have fallen off the map and he may still not be around. So it was it was a gamble. And he decided to kind of play it. I don't want to say play it safe, but play it smart. So to me, Shadow Stevens is one of those, I think, unfortunately, unrecognized artists. I mean, I think everyone should go watch Shadow Vision. And that's spelled S-H-A-D-O-E. It's on YouTube. The full thing is on Shadow's website. So, I mean, he, it's all out there for free. You're not pirating it to go to see it. Shadow put them up on his own YouTube page. You can also see he did the Federated, the Fred R. rated commercials, three of them a week for, I think it was, like I said, five or six years. So there are th- literally over a thousand of those out there. But there's a good couple of hundred on YouTube, again, that Shadow put up himself. And you'll get a kick out of them. I think they're delightful. Um, you need to understand that it's absurdist. It'll be hard to follow, but it's... It's it's meant to be like that, though. Yeah, it's meant to be like that. It's a lot of fun. I absolutely think the guy is awesome. I, I wish that um, his weird, awesome side projects would have taken off. Because we need, at the very least, DVD-quality co- copies of tracks and shadow vision just and any other insanity that he would have been able to come up with over the years but never really was allowed to so i i just think the guy is great he's cool he's unique he's got an awesome sense of humor and i hope that one day he does finally get his uh his druthers so to speak see the way i look at shadow's career is and something we say on the show all the time he was ahead of his time you look at shadow vision there was nothing like Shadow Vision in 1986. Just the very idea of a show that has jokes in such rapid-fire succession that by the time you laugh at one, you missed three more. That's a really unique way to come at your audience, and I think we need people like that. And I think the Cinemax, just they didn't know what they had, and that's the problem. Same with Dino De Laurentiis. They just they didn't know what they had. Because Shadow Stevens was a resource, and then you wasted him. If people want to get rapid-fire comedy as well as information from Cecil T., where would they go? If you would like to listen to my lovely voice, you can find me. Aw. 
Yes, they do. I was called the White Morgan Freeman. Yeah, th- that's ra- that's racist. <laughs> you can find me at goodbadflicks.com as well as geekjuicemedia.com. Where can people find Alex Jowski's unique, ahead of its time, sense of hipster humor? It's not hipster at all. Geekjuicemedia.com. And you can find me at 1201beyond.com. You can contact the show at 1201beyond at gmail.com. And I'm also at the same, ahead of its time, geekjuicemedia.com. The one entertainment website that will rule the web. Where am I overstepping my bounds a little there?
Radio Drome is a 1201 Beyond production. Visit 1201beyond.com for more great shows.